Heavenly Father, this is our prayer, that you would give us ears to hear your voice, that you would give us taste for heaven's joys, that through the gospel of your Son, you would give us endless hope and peace by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So, there are just a few activities in the world that I do not enjoy. At the top of the list is dancing. And it's probably because I'm not very good at it. I still have nightmares from junior high until I learned that I should stick to slow songs and I was capable of turning in a circle. And then there was a problem. Not that I met my wife, but that my wife likes to dance. And my wife was determined that we were going to have our first dance as a married couple. And so that petrified me. So what did we do? We took dance lessons. We took a lot of dance lessons. And I danced until I danced. And I had it down until our wedding dance. And then I forgot everything and I just reverted to junior high around and around in a circle. You know how some people post all these great wedding dances on YouTube? Ours would be like the top ten worst. So... My wife is still learning to dance with me. Here's the thing. Some things in life are really hard. Dancing for me. And I had to dance until I danced. Now, if the studies are true, then you are one of the most highly educated groups of people in the world. And that means you like to read. And if you're like me, some books take several chapters before you get into the story. It's slow reading until you're captivated, until you're into it, and then the next thing you know, it's 3 a.m., and you need to go to bed. Sometimes you have to read until you read. And then if the studies are true, many of you like to exercise, and many of you like to play golf. Now, I recognize not all of you think that golf is exercise. However... Golf does not come easy for me. I did not grow up playing golf. I'm still not good at it. So what do I have to do? I have to go out and I have to practice. I have to practice until I create muscle memory. You have to swing until you swing. Now hopefully all of those examples cover all the creatives, the intellectuals, and the athletes. So all of you should be able to connect to this idea that is pray until you pray. A common phrase from the Puritans. What does it mean to pray until you pray? Now, it includes persistence, but it's way more than persistence. It means to pray for a duration of time until the gospel seeps into your inmost being and you experience his love and grace in a profound way in your mind And in your life. Now we can pray short prayers, but this morning I want to focus on some lengthier prayers of how to get the most out of your prayer time. And I have one point for you this morning to consider from Psalm 1. It is this pray until you pray, because your soul will not rest until it rests in the Lord. Now if you look at Psalm 1, the psalmist is drawing this contrast between really two ways to live life. The way of the wicked, the way of the unrighteous, and then the way of the one who finds their rest in the Lord. You see, there are two ways to live life. We can either seek to find our rest in the world, 
or we can seek to find our rest in the Lord. One is blown away like chaff, and one is for eternity. And the psalmist says, you should think about this. So let me ask you this. If you're not a Christian, if you wouldn't describe yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ, first of all, welcome. We are really glad that you are here. Second, let me ask you a question. I love this quote by Archbishop William Temple who says this, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. What do you do with your solitude? When your iPhone is dead and there's no more updates to read on Facebook, where does your mind wonder? When you lay down at night, what consumes your imagination? William Temple is basically saying that wherever your mind goes is probably where your identity is. Now, some of these things could be very good things. It could be things like your vocation. It could be things like your family. It could be things like even hobbies and games. These are all good things. But if you look to them for your ultimate identity, when they are kicked, when they are not going very well, it will shake you to your core. And the psalmist says, there's something more. There's something better. And I invite you to consider that this morning about what it means to delight in the Lord. What it means for the finite to have communion with the infinite Father. So, believers, let me also challenge you with a question this morning. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, don't just pray like the hypocrites who want to have everyone hear their prayers, but I want you to pray in private. I want you to pray in secret. I want you to go to your prayer room. What is he talking about? We see in the first century, most homes had this inner room that had no windows so that it was dark so that they could reasonably control the temperature. It was an area for them to store their food. And Jesus says, you should go in there and you should pray to your Father. What was Jesus getting at? It's not wrong to pray in public. But Jesus was drilling down into what is your motivation for prayer? Are you motivated to pray simply because you delight in the heavenly Father. Let me ask a very self-diagnostic question. Let me point this out to you. How well is your personal, private prayer life going? Because I would submit to you that a key indicator of your spiritual vitality is your personal and private prayer life. You see, when we pray in public, there's accountability when we pray at the dinner table, when we pray in the home fellowship group, we're motivated by maybe what people will think of us. But when you have solitude, do you find yourself running to spend time with your heavenly Father? The psalmist says we should delight in the Lord in this way. The psalmist tells us to meditate on the law day and night. 
Now, the Hebrew translation of meditate is sort of gross. It's the same word that's used for a a cow chewing its cud. It's the idea of redigesting your food, of chewing it and savoring it and tasting it. And so the idea for the believer is that we are to eat the Word of God. Just as a cow eats food for physical nourishment, we are to eat the Word of God to savor it, to digest it, to chew it, so that we take every ounce of taste from it, ponder it, probe it, chew on it. Now, how do we do that? Well, in my life growing up, because of my parents... Um, I had a fairly disciplined prayer life because one of the things that we always did at 9 p.m. every night, we had family devotions, and we went around the room, and we prayed together. And so we were constantly praying as a family. Now, some of these times were rich. Some of these times felt real. And many of the other times, it felt sort of like an empty ritual, like we were just going through the motions, As I grew in my faith, I still had these same experiences. There were times in my personal private prayer life that felt real, and there were other times that it just felt like it was fake. I still didn't understand prayer really well, and I went to seminary, and they offered a prayer class. And so what did I do? I signed up for it. It was at 5 a.m. in the morning. And this is encouraging and discouraging. They expected that only 10 people would sign up for it because it was so early. And over almost 100 signed up for it because they wanted to learn how to pray. It was taught by Dr. Richard Pratt who wrote the book, Pray With Your Eyes Open. And I commend it to you. And we would spend an hour talking about prayer. And then we would spend an hour praying And as I look back on this time, that was one of the the richest time in prayer that I ever experienced. But I had trouble replicating it afterwards because I really didn't know the key to prayer. It wasn't until a sermon series a few years ago that Tim Keller turned into a book called Prayer, Experiencing Intimacy and Awe with God, that I began to understand how to get more out of my personal and private prayer life. He shares three tips that he summarizes from Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, and Martin Luther, and I want to share those with you this morning. The first thing that you should do in your personal and your private prayer life is to read Scripture. Get in the Word. That's what the psalmist says right here. He says, the psalmist, his delight is in what? In the law of the Lord. He's not just talking about one specific command, but the word for law is instruction. It means the entire Bible. It means that you should spend time in truth. Okay, this is a really important point for Christians. When we go to spend time with the Lord, we are not emptying our minds. We are not going to superstitious babble, but we are filling our minds with truth, with rational thoughts. We are thinking about a historical Jesus who lived and died and rose again because as Paul tells us, if this is not true, if this is not real, then we are to be pitied. 
We don't check our minds at the door. We actually renew our minds and we think deeply about Scripture. It's to quote on the front of your worship guide from John Owen. Where light, and he uses that as a synonym for truth, where light leaves the affections behind, it ends in formality and or atheism. Where affections outrun light, they sink into the bog of superstition. What is he saying? He is saying that in your personal prayer life, there should be both truth or light and also affection. And that if truth exceeds your emotions, then it becomes an empty ritual. But if your affections exceed truth, then you're in a bog of empty superstition. So what we aim for is truth or light and for it to touch our affections. Now, how do we do this? If we're going to study the Bible, then we need to know how to study the Bible, right? So we have to take five or ten minutes to think about a passage. We have to ask questions of these scriptures that we read. Questions like, okay, what do these verses tell me about God? What do these verses tell me about me? How do these, voice, how do these verses point towards Christ? And what difference will this grace or will Jesus make in my life? And we have to think about these verses. So that means you have to work at it. You have to know how to interpret and apply the Bible. Now, if you're a new believer, this may take a little bit of time. You may have to work at it to understand the genre, the context. You may have to um, really work at understanding how this points towards Jesus. For others of you maybe who are mature believers, this can take just five or ten minutes to read a chunk of Scripture and you can apply it to your life. Let me commend several things to you. When you read a passage of Scripture, paraphrase it. Write it down in your own words. Or outline the verses. Or write down all the verbs or the nouns. Jot down a few thoughts or ideas that really stick with you. If you don't know what to do, one of my favorite things is actually a children's book. The Jesus Storybook Bible. If you want to know how to interpret and apply Scripture, read one of those stories and read the Scripture that goes along with it and you will understand that the Bible is one story about one hero and it's not us, but it's Jesus. And after you've done this, after you've written down a few thoughts from Scripture, then you're ready for, I think, the most neglected step. And that next step is this, meditation. In verse 2 it says, he meditates. Do you know that the psalmist throughout the book of Psalms commands us 16 times to meditate on the word of God? He does it in places like Psalm 39 where it says, David meditated until his heart grew hot. There's another interesting psalm, Psalm 103, where David writes, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who is David addressing? It's not the Lord. It's his inmost being. It's his soul. He's talking to himself. It's what we say as believers. He's preaching the gospel to himself. 
There are other places in Scripture that we are commanded to meditate on the Word. Like Joshua 1.8, Joshua says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And it's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. There's this amazing prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul prays, get this, for believers, for Christians, What does he say? He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Literally, that means I pray your heart would be sensitive to the light of what God has done for you. You know, it's interesting. Paul doesn't pray for power. They already have it. Paul doesn't pray for adoption. They already have it. Paul doesn't pray for salvation. They already have it. Paul prays that they would know their adoption That they would know their glorification. That they would know their justification. That they would know the power of God that is already present in their lives. That's what meditation is. It's planting spiritual truths deep in your soul. Now meditation is not just scripture reading. And it's not just prayer. It's actually a combination of the two. It's the bridge between the two. And I think it's the one thing that most believers neglect. It was the thing that I neglected in my prayer life. I actually think this is the step that most preachers neglect and why at times it can seem like there's very little power in our preaching. The truth has to first affect our hearts before it can affect anyone else. Richard Baxter calls meditation praying the truth into the soul until it catches fire. Martin Luther wrote a whole lot about meditation. He had a friend named Peter who was a barber. And one day when uh, Peter the barber was cutting his hair, Peter the barber made the mistake of asking Martin Luther how to pray. So Martin Luther went home and wrote him a 40-page letter on how to pray. And in it, basically he said, meditate. This is how I do it. He would pray up to two hours a day and he says, meditate on the Ten Commandments and he shows him how to do it. Meditate on the Lord's Prayer and then he shows him how to do it. Meditate on the Apostles' Creed and then he shows him how to do it. You see, what we should do is to take a truth of Scripture and then let it marinate. It's what James did a few weeks ago in his sermon that uh, we are to pray to God because he is our Heavenly Father. As he meditated on that, what does that mean? God is our Father. It means he's caring. Our Father in heaven. What does in heaven mean? It means he is capable. Take just one word in that. Our Father. What does our mean in that prayer? It means this. It means that being a Christian is a corporate thing. Think about that. And then think about how can I be adopted into the family of God, how can I say our Father? It's only through our brother, Jesus Christ. And then, as I think about this truth, that all of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, you are my brothers and sisters. And then the weight hits me. I don't love you like I should. And then as I think about that, think about what that does for community Do you realize that because we are one family, it means that we ought to know one another and we ought to be known by one another. 
take one word and meditate on it, and there is so much to digest in it. For me, this is usually the point in my prayer life where I like to listen to a song. When James was preaching about God being our Heavenly Father, I kept playing over and over a song by House Fires, Good, Good Father. And I can play that, and I am just moved to worship in reflecting on who God is. It may be different for you. It was different for James a few weeks ago. He burst in my office one Sunday morning, and to my shock, he was singing a country song. He came in singing Carrie Underwood uh, song about um, the water, the something in the water song. I'm like, James, you don't even like country music. He's like, I know, but this is good. And he had his windows down on the interstate blaring it every day. So it can come in strange places. Somebody in the first service mentioned that when they listened to the Messiah, because it was a word over and over, it allowed them to meditate on a particular word. Someone else said that something that's very helpful for them is to personalize it, to put their name in specific promises in Scripture, and it makes it real, it makes it true. You know, this is what we seek to do as preachers and teachers of the Word. Every week, we want to meet with the Lord so that when we show up on Sunday in this pulpit, it is evident that we have been in the presence of the Lord. I love how Alistair Begg summarizes what preaching is. He says, read yourself full, write yourself clear, pray yourself ready, and preach yourself empty. So good. It's what all of us should be doing in our times with the Lord. Let me illustrate it this way, what meditation is. A few weeks ago, we discovered the first snake in our yard. So I was in the backyard assembling our swing set with my two oldest sons, Graham and Hudson. And so I was fiddling around with some screws and I was quite engulfed in what I was doing. And then I heard my oldest son say, hey, dad, there's a snake. I said, okay. And I kept working. And then he said it again, dad, there's a snake. Okay. And he's like, dad, do you hear me? Because that's what I'll say to him sometimes. Do you hear me? Give me a thumbs up. So he he repeats the same thing back to me. Dad, do you hear me? What did I say? And I repeated it. You said, Dad, there's a snake. Oh, Dad, there's a snake. So I go jumping off the, uh, the tree house. And as I jump down there, I see one son running for high ground. And I see the other son chasing after the snake. <laughs> now, my son said the same phrase to me twice. The first time, it stayed up here. The second time, I really heard it, and it affected me. It moved me to action. That's the idea of what meditation is. Some of you know it. Some of you grew up in churches that faithfully preached the gospel, and you heard it week after week, but it wasn't until that one moment that you really heard it. That's what the idea of meditation is. That's what the Psalms are all about. Actually, this whole idea of morning and evening, if you look at Psalm chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's David meditating on different truths. Psalm chapter 4 is a prayer in the evening when he's worried, when he's anxious. And you know what he does? He rehearses the character of God and the fellowship that he has. He says in verse 6, the light of your face is upon us. He searches his heart. He talks to himself. He realizes that he has fellowship with the Father and it calms 
is fear. Psalm 5 is his prayer in the morning, and it shocks me because it begins with, God, answer me. I come to you expectantly. I come to you confidently. I come to you boldly. You know why? Because I am righteous. I hear David pray that, and I'm like, hmm, maybe you're righteous. You're a man after God's own heart. But I identify more with Isaiah. I am a man of unclean lips. How can I come to the Father boldly? Do you know how? Do you know how David did? Do you know how we can? It's because there's one prayer that went unanswered. It was one prayer by the only righteous one. When Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me. And the father was silent. The cup did not pass from him. It was a cup of wrath, of judgment, reserved for me, for my sins that I justly deserved. And because he absorbed my penalty on the cross, and because he lived a perfect life of obedience, his righteousness was transferred to me so that when I approach my heavenly Father, I truly am righteous. Not because of my works, but because of the works of Christ. That's how we approach. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We fill our minds with the truth until it catches fire. The gospel must go into our inmost being. And then you know what happens after that? The third thing. Scripture Meditate, and then finally, prayer is just an overflow of your meditation. What I've found, if I have meditated, then prayer actually becomes really easy. And there are several guides that you can follow. You can follow Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Let me suggest another one to you. Pray upward, pray inward, and then pray outward. That's actually the prayers of our liturgy in corporate worship, in our prayer of invocation, We pray upward. In our prayer of confession, we pray inward. In our pastoral prayer, we pray outward. Now, three last quick things. What if you do all of these things and you still don't experience delight in the Lord in your prayer life? Three quick tips. One is this. Prayer is work. You have to pray until you pray. Listen to how Paul talks about it. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a means of grace. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's all grace. Yet I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Sometimes, as James talked about, prayer is a duty and a delight. Sometimes duty comes before delight. Sometimes form comes before feeling. And that's not a bad thing. It's okay. Second tip is this. Prayer requires patience. Sometimes you have to be in the place of grace. You have to put yourself on the path of grace so that you can encounter and delight in Jesus. I think one of the ways that we see this in Scripture is in Mark chapter 10 when there was a man named Bartimaeus, a blind man, and he heard about this guy named Jesus. He heard he was amazing. And he heard he often traveled on this road. And so he camped beside this road until the Savior passed by. And then he cried out, Lord, Son of God, have mercy on me. We have to put ourselves in the path of grace. 
The third quick tip is this. Is that prayer is resting. One of the most profound verses to meditate on is Zephaniah 3.17. It says, The Lord your God will take great delight in you, and he will rejoice over you with singing. It's amazing. You know, even when you're struggling in your prayer life, do you know that the Lord is singing over you? He's delighting in you even if you're struggling to delight in Him. Let me close with this story. So one of my favorite things to do right now is to coach Little League Baseball. Coach my six-year-old son's team, and I'm very competitive by nature. And so I knew I needed help if I was going to coach. And so I tried to read a few articles about how to emphasize the proper things in the game, not just winning. So I read an article by Tim Elmore, and he makes several suggestions about what we ought to say to our children before they compete and then after they compete. The three things that we ought to say to our kids before they compete are have fun, play hard, and I love you. And then afterwards, we are to say, did you have fun? I'm proud of you. I love you. Now, it's interesting. There were some researchers that actually probed deeper into this. Bruce Brown and Rob Miller. They asked college athletes what their parents said that made them feel great and brought them the most joy when they were competing. And do you know what it was? It was six words. It wasn't the home run. It wasn't the touchdown. It was this. I love to watch you play. Our Heavenly Father says the same thing to us when we attempt to pray. I love to watch you pray. Pray until you pray because your soul will only find rest in the Lord. Let's go to Him now. Heavenly Father, it is amazing that you delight over us, that you rejoice over us with singing. Yet it is more amazing that I am more satisfied to make mud pies in the backyard than to take a vacation at the sea. That I will, I will choose the creation over the Creator that I will take the gifts over the giver of the gifts. Father, please take this lie away from our minds so that we can see you as you truly are. As Jonathan Edwards said, we are blessed, we are happy because our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away from us. And the best is yet to come. Put these truths in our inmost being so that we might be the first to be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.